bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We are going to go against the grain for a couple hours. I have already won today uh, by preventing myself from from indulging in this strange urge to start the show by just saying, well, hello. Well, hello there, everybody. How you doing? So, Like that Saturday Night Live skit, good times. Already, yes. So we're already ahead of the game here. Um, and we have a lot to get into. We have a whole weekend to catch up on. Uh, we are going to talk about the the crisis in Sri Lanka, which, of course, has been on the boil for some time, but has now spilled over. And you can see these images of people swimming in the president's pool and lounging on his bed. Yeah. How do you I'm, like that? I like it a lot. I, I think it's too. just fine. I do, I do not profess to know very much about Sri Lanka. I'm going to be educated by our guest. But... Just on a surface level, I'm into it. I think that it is perfectly fine. I learned a lot about about uh, Sri Lanka this weekend. I've always wanted to go to Sri Lanka. I went one time only because I was working in Hyderabad for six uh, weeks, and it was a weekend, and it was like 150 bucks to fly to Sri Lanka. So I went. I wanted to see an elephant, and I got to see an elephant. There you it go. It was worth the trip. I just want to go to a place that has a city called Candy. <laughs> That makes me happy. We are going to talk about that. We are going to talk about uh, the U.S. intelligence services maybe being yeah. behind an attempt to acquire uh, the NSO group and and yeah. what kind of implications that has. And we've talked about NSO here on the mm-hmm. show. They're the uh, creators of this of this awful Pegasus software that can literally suck every last bit of data out of your phone remotely. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have to be in your presence. They can just do it remotely and then turn your phone against you by turning it into a microphone, which then broadcasts to them everything that you're doing and saying, and a GPS. Horrifying. Yeah. And so we banned this software in the United States, and and uh, President Biden declared it a threat to national security. But also— But then we tried to buy it. Wouldn't it be nice if we had it also? Exactly oh, right. Having cake and eating it, too. Nobody ever tries to do that. We are going to preview Joe Biden's trip to the Middle East. We are going to talk about uh, Steve Bannon having his big moment before the January 6th committee. We are going to talk about Chile's new constitution and all of the supposedly neutral voices weighing in on it, uh, chief among them The Economist. It had nothing to do with the old constitution or supporting that in any way. Just coming to this new constitution, totally neutral arbiters who are just worried about how woke it is. Uh, We are going to talk about all kinds of stuff. I want to start, though. I have two things I want to get into here before we move on to our guests. And one is the bad news for Joe Biden this morning. Uh, according to a new poll by Siena College and the New York Times, 64% of Democratic voters. Mm-hmm. So this isn't everybody. This is all the, the blue That's people right. in the bushel. That's right. They want someone else to run for president in 2024. It's, it's an incredible, probably an insurmountable figure for him. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I can't come up with a better word. We've talked about his approval ratings. Last last week, it was still at 33%, right? Not not any better. This is for all voters nationwide. Give him a 33% job approval rating. Um, let me ask you if this sounds familiar, John. More than three quarters of registered voters see the United States moving in the l- wrong direction, a pervasive sense of pessimism that spans every corner of the country, every age range and racial group, cities, suburbs, and rural areas, as well as both political parties, feels, yep, that's where I am. Pervasive pessimism. That is, that's oh, yes. my address and, and has know, been for some time. One of the things that I've learned in 
in Washington. I've been in Washington now for, it'll be 40 years next month. One of the things that I've learned is that presidents, regardless of what they say, they take polling numbers very, very seriously. And not just the polls that we see that are released to the media or released on realclearpolitics.com. They have their own internal polling that they, uh, that they receive regularly, sometimes weekly. So you know that Joe Biden is not just looking at these polls. He's looking at his own internal polls, which are probably saying exactly the same thing. He has to be considering just moving on. I mean, I was surprised at this. His approval rating among Democrats is 70 percent, which sounds like a lot. But what do I know? Apparently, it's 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 low. It's quite low. Um, And 26 percent of Democratic voters said the party should renominate him in 2024. I realize that's just another way of saying the 64 percent want somebody else. But still, only 26 percent. I mean, is that taking into account just how odd it would be to not have the incumbent president run as the representative of your party. I mean, that is wild. Well, and when, when was the last time that happened? I, I can't even think of a I do time. not know. Possibly one has happened in American history. The because 19th I do not, century sometime. Maybe. Yeah. But who knows? I don't know. Um, the other thing that happened over the weekend was this a sort of one-two punch for Joe Biden because uh, you had the New York Times also running an article. I think it was on Saturday going, uh, hey, have you guys noticed that Joe Biden is pretty old. Like, man, that really snuck up on us. Have you seen this guy? And so the article is called saying Joe Biden is is testing the boundaries of age and the presidency. That's not a good thing. It's not. And I will say the rest of the story, a lot of the story is about how everything is fine. And the real problem is Joe Biden's got too much energy and he's asking all these questions and he's, you know, grilling people on policy details and all the stuff that they they usually say. Right. But they did. The Times did bring in a few people to say, look, 80 should be the cutoff for running for office. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed this from the article that was, you know, suppose you get that the mission for this article was, hey, guys, we can't ignore the fact that he's old. Let's have an article with a headline about how he's old. And then it'll be three quarters of people saying, boy, he sure runs me ragged. Yeah, you know, that's right. But this came up. Mr. Biden is not the first president to confront questions of age. The issue came up repeatedly under President Trump, who is four years younger. Mr. Trump's diminished vocabulary, tendency to meander, sometimes incoherent remarks, light office schedule and struggles to process information led critics to conclude he was in decline. Oh, but none of that ever happens to Joe Biden. I mean, come on. And again, watching Donald Trump is also well. Anybody at that level of government is a sociopath, but but yes. Donald Trump was a pretty obvious one and yes. did this sort of sociopathic language things where like you've you've never been caught in a lie, you never have to apologize for anything that are unfamiliar to some lucky people, I guess, and and so that was like in addition to him just kind of wandering off. But the idea that Donald Trump's behavior raised questions, but Joe Biden's doesn't really right is quite silly. It's laughable. Yeah. So really not a good not a good weekend for uh, Joe Biden or Democrats, really, if you have people going, actually, nobody wants you to run for president. And we're all starting to notice what we didn't notice in 2020 or in 2021. But now where our eyes have been opened to in 2022 is the fact that you are quite old and you are acting that way. You know, somebody said something on 
on uh, Twitter yesterday that uh, I thought was absolutely true. Uh, it's that um, the the Democrats made Joe Biden president because he has put in his time. He's the perfect neoliberal DNC mainstream Democratic candidate. Nothing will fundamentally change. No, That's what they exactly. wanted. Yeah. And it's, they got it. They got it. You got what you wanted. Yep. That's it. Enjoy it mm-hmm. while it lasts. Uh, he was not the only Biden in the news. Hunter yeah, Biden. Seriously. I want to talk. I want to talk about actually a, a new Google warning I saw this morning. Right. Because, of course, uh, you see there is what is purports to be new images and commentary on uh, some kind of new hack of Hunter Biden's phone or his iCloud account, right? And so far, all of these stories are coming from quarters that uh, you should not automatically trust. Yes. Right? Yes, indeed. you know, like three quarters of this Hunter Biden stuff, including the new stuff that's coming out, is just sort of salacious garbage, right? And I don't personally need to get my kicks by watching someone smoke crack and then clutch my own pearls really hard and go like, ooh, wow, isn't that bad? Right, right. Right? I don't care. But- Mixed in with this stuff also tends to be evidence of uh, corruption and deception that is worth remarking on. And historically speaking, when it comes to Hunter Biden, this stuff comes out that seems crazy, right? It seems it seems too distasteful or just seems like more of the same. It seems made up. The only people talking about it are, you know, it it starts on 4chan or somewhere and you go, okay, well, I'm going to pour some Mortons all over top of this. But also what we have seen over the last couple of years is that it tends to be borne out eventually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I cannot remember. I cannot remember actually anything that has come out uh, about Hunter Biden that has been proven false. That's right. Right. Or even that he has continued denying. Right. He is mostly said, oh, yeah, I guess. Sure. And could to be tell mine. you the truth, the mainstream media has truly given him the benefit of the doubt. Well, listen to that. Yes. And I still am just mm-hmm. because, again, I'm not going to I don't I don't live in 4chan. You of know course. what I mean? I don't have relationships with with 4chan. And so when I see something coming out of there, I go, OK, well, I'm aware that it exists Consider the source. and I'm going to see yes. how it ends up being treated. Um, but because all this is going on. Right. I thought, okay, well, I'll just take. I'll see where I can find. I'll see who, how, who's treating this. How is it being treated? Where is it coming up? And so I go to Google and t- do the laziest thing in the world. I just type in Hunter Biden hack, <laughs> and what comes up is a little like alert icon, an exclamation point in what? it, and a message that says, "It looks like these results are changing quickly." If the topic is new, it can sometimes take time for reliable sources to publish information. And then it gives me all this advice. Check the source. Are they trusted on this topic? Come back later. Other sources might have more information on this topic in a few hours or days. Get more tips. So this whole chunk of text, before it gives me any results, saying, hey, you know, check these sources, blah, blah, blah. Also, uh, you know, check the source. Are they trusted on this topic? Not trusted on this topic would probably be the New York Times, right? The Washington Post, Politico. All of these reporters that were saying this is Russian disinformation, right? This whole thing was Russian disinformation. That warning was new to me. And then I had some fun trying to get it to come up with any other potentially inflammatory wow. search. So I put in uh, Jeffrey Epstein murder and just got a right. bunch of articles. I tried uh, Queen Elizabeth murder. Oh, Queen Elizabeth lizard. I tried a bunch <laughs> of QAnon stuff. I tried 
plandemic, you know, I tried COVID-19 hoax. None of this got me another alert warning me uh, that I might not want to look further because information on the internet is changing. So to support your statement that the media has really given him the benefit of the doubt, yeah, to the extent that Google is telling me, hey, 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 I don't know if you want to really look at this stuff. I, I It'd see be dangerous you for your pretty little eyes. I've never seen anything like this before. No. And I mean, again, it was hard to come up with something that is like as inflammatory and of the moment. Yes. Um, yes. But certainly like COVID-19. It's not right. like the pandemic is over. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, yeah I've never I seen that, anything like I this. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, yeah. And again, the, this this Hunter Biden stuff, I truly, I truly genuinely don't care and don't think it's particularly important Uh what imagery we have of Hunter Biden doing different drugs. Like this is no, no. we know this. We know, we know the lives of addicts can get very, very messy. Yeah. It's not particularly interesting. But again, that doesn't mean that all this other stuff that comes out about, you know, it, what exactly was his role in Ukraine? What exactly was the role of the Biden administration and sort of facilitating some of this stuff? And as we have said before, even the, uh, the implications of an evidence of uh, corruption mm-hmm. that, arise out of some of these emails that we get access Mm -hmm. to through these various ways. Even that is not necessarily new or surprising, but because it isn't necessarily new or surprising, we should talk about it. We should go, this is the way, this is the way it works, you know, at this level. And that's bad. Yeah. And that means, unfortunately, that you can't trust, you can't necessarily trust the messaging of our government on these topics because they're, you know, they've, they've been lying about the role of their children and enriching themselves, et cetera. Um, you know what? I just got a text from our friend Kevin Gastala, uh-huh. and he says that uh, that we are expecting a verdict in the Joshua Schulte trial today. Wow. It looks like even though the jury did not meet over the weekend, that they appear to be coming to a decision very uh, quickly. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I Fingers crossed for Josh that. Schulte. Yeah. I wish him the best. Um. Other news, John, I'm just, I don't want to know about uh, the Elon Musk Twitter legal oh battle. I don't, I really I don't want to know any more about it. Uh, I guess he's, he, Elon Musk said he didn't want to buy Twitter because there are too many bots in the platform. And now Twitter is uh, going to try to take him to court. So you have a saga where yeah. uh, apparently, according to what I know, t- Twitter never wanted to be bought by Elon Musk. <laughs> And Elon Musk was like, how about, you know, $44 billion, which I think by most accounts yeah. I've seen is it's, way it's, more than it's, it's worth. Yes. Yeah. And then they said, OK, well, all right, let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. Ha- let's do it. Sign some binding yes. agreements, right? Yes. Including non-disclosure agreements, mm-hmm. which you immediately violated. And now Elon Musk wants to back out uh, there. I gather there is a $1 billion withdrawal fee, but there will be even more than that. And Twitter is apparently going to try and take him to court to make the deal go through. Yeah. If I'm missing some key aspect of this, I know that do you you've hit it. You know, the funny care. thing in this to me is um, I, I honestly don't think he ever really intended to buy Twitter or mm-hmm. he intended to at the very beginning. And then when found out when he found out that millions of accounts were just bots, decided this thing isn't worth $44 billion. And I was amused to see his sister say over the weekend, I really thought he was going to buy Twitter. Yeah. It's like, why are you even talking about this? Yeah. 
And also, Elon Musk's real talent is stock market manipulation yes. and the manipulation of government subsidies. He's right? always in so trouble for doing it. Someone smarter than me can probably figure out what he's gained out of this whole uh, drama. But I don't think that I don't think that much of it has ever been what it appeared to be. Yeah. Agreed. And that is as much as I can possibly Agreed. say about it. Agreed. I also just want to know, you know, the Washington Post this morning has a big, um, it's got like a big d- deep dive expose oh, yeah. into Uber. On Uber. Yeah. I, I, I logged onto the Post this morning and the whole top of the first page was just five articles about Uber. I mean, it just sort of furthers a theme that we we hit on this show pretty often, which is like, okay, good. Uber's Uber's, I think, a bad company. It had a bad business model that's really destructive to our society and to our economy. But it's been bad. Where have you been? You know what I mean? Where have you been? Yeah. This is supposed to be news. Right. People have been writing about Uber forever. People yeah. have been saying, look for at this, look, look what Some they're doing. Look how much have... money they're putting into try, you know, trying to thwart the will of the people of California. Mm-hmm. Look how much money they're put they're dumping into trying to break the back of this market so they can just exploit your labor for for even less exactly money. Exactly right. It wasn't hidden. No, Greece and Italy banned Uber for exactly those reasons. Um, anyway, so good job, Washington Post. Welcome. Welcome to the party, I guess. Yeah. Let's take a break here. We're going to come back and talk to our guest about a couple of foreign policy stories. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we've got a couple of stories that I wanted to get into. One coming out of Sri Lanka, a look at what didn't happen at the G20 meeting in Indonesia, and a look ahead at how uh, the U.S. is setting up the same old Cold War battleground, I think, in Africa and and what we should expect to come out of there. Joining us for all these conversations is Robert Fantina. He's a journalist and an activist working for peace and social justice. His latest book is Propaganda, Lies and False Flags, How the U.S. Justifies Its Wars. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I want to start with Sri Lanka, which, uh, as John and I mentioned in the intro to the show, had been at a simmer for a while now with huge protests over a lack of basic supplies. And I mean, I believe it was last week that the government of the country announced that they had one day of fuel left, right? So uh, lack is maybe not strong enough of a word for what is happening there. Um, it appears that these mass public protests were at times over the past couple of weeks met with um, orchestrated pro-government counter-protests. Things got violent a few times. But over the weekend, Sri Lankans finally forced the resignations of both their president and prime minister, although as of this morning— seemed like the president was being a little wishy-washy about um, actually making the announcement directly. Um, What is unclear to me is what can be achieved in the short term with a new government, right? The country is broke. The last government was negotiating with the IMF, but from a very weak position, which is, you know, 
to put aside the morality of talking about strong or weak positions when you are talking about the possibility of a nation going hungry. Um, but, you know, I guess that is all we can expect for now. And so I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about what what comes next for Sri Lanka, uh, what could happen, what should happen, and whether the IMF is going to be anybody's savior here. Well, we can't look at the IMF to be anybody's savior because uh, that, that organization often has an agenda that's uh, often... Uh, directed by the United States, but let's let's look at uh, what what could come for ahead uh, for Sri Lanka. Things are very very difficult there, and in the short term, there's not a lot that can be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, other nations, uh, the World Food Bank and so on, must come in to provide food for the people, food and, and fuel that's much needed. But they're in a very difficult uh, situation. They need to have a parliament that will choose the next government, the next president. Mm-hmm. Has to be done in a month. And whether or not that can happen is very doubtful at this point because of the disorganization, because of the unrest, and because of the, the corruption of the, the pre, and the mismanagement of the previous government. The, uh, the discussions with the IMF, they're looking for an extended, what's called an extended fund facility lending arrangement. They have to have a functioning government to continue these negotiations. Uh, but without that functioning government, as I just mentioned, that may not come to pass anytime in the very near future. Then there's no one to negotiate with the IMF, so the IMF can then not assist the country. Mm-hmm. So they're in a very difficult situation. They've the president and prime minister have resigned, and, and the information I'm getting is that the president is definitely resigning. Mm-hmm. The parliament has to be formed and has to pick a president. That is not going to be an overnight. Uh, event considering uh, the the polarization and the, the different groups that are vying for 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 power at the present time and who are who believe some of them very legitimately that they can they have a way out of Sri Lanka's uh, problems. Mm-hmm. These these issues go back to at least the 1950s and they're not going to be solved overnight. Yeah, it, it's, it strikes me as sort of similar to uh, the attention that Lebanon was getting a, a couple of months back. Its collapse was a little bit less dramatic, um, but, you know, it, it is one of these situations where, as you say, the, the factors here go back decades. There isn't really a, a global institution that has a lot of interest in uh, changing many of those factors. And so it feels like maybe there will be some some short-term solutions you can apply, but the, the long-term solution is, uh, you know, there's not a lot of political will for it. There isn't a lot of political will. And Sri Lanka is not a country that has great strategic value to the United States or anyone else mm-hmm. for it's going to be uh, shunted aside and neglected. Mm-hmm. The United States just talks about human rights and all this, this uh, which sounds very nice, but never fulfills those obligations. Uh, but we have a situation with Sri Lanka where people, as you mentioned, they have a day or two's worth of food left. Mm-hmm. going to very quickly become a major humanitarian crisis unless, unless some international agency or some nation acts immediately to provide services to the people there. Yeah. Yeah. It's dire to contemplate. Uh, On the topic of being shunted to the side and neglected, I wanted to take a look back at what didn't happen at the G20, particularly between uh, the U.S. and Russia. Even the Washington Post was commenting over the weekend uh, that in the nearly five months since this war began, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has maintained the same posture toward Moscow. Do not engage. 
Uh, so since the war in Ukraine began, he has not held a single meeting or phone call with a senior Russian official, including at the G20 meeting, even though you had the host Indonesia saying, hey, wouldn't it be better to resolve this conflict diplomatically and sooner rather than later? And so the Post has decided to ask whether this is actually good, and it found some veteran diplomats to say, no, the U.S. obviously has a lot of interest at stake in its relationship with Russia, both global ones, you know, uh, helping stabilize global food and energy prices, at least theoretically we would be interested in this, but also smaller scale and more immediate ones like getting Brittany Griner released. And closing off channels of communication would not seem to further any of these goals that we are told we really have and take very seriously. And so Blinken says, you know, look, other countries tell us Russia isn't interested in serious conversations. The counter offered to that is that the conversation cannot be serious unless the U.S. is there, considering the United States is providing the vast majority of assistance to Ukraine and is the leader of the Western coalition, both supporting Ukraine and its part in that conflict and also organizing uh, um, a blockade against Russia. And so I wonder what you think— I want to ask how you think we should understand this lack of engagement by the United States. Does this speak more to perhaps the competence of this State Department team, or should this indicate something about our goals for this war? Very good questions. The United States is always looking for some strategic advantage whenever there's any uh, crisis anywhere around the world. Mm -hmm. Not looking for peace. They're not looking for justice. Uh, they're not looking or adhere to international law, but it's a human right. Now, in this case, uh, the United States, the fact the United States has not contacted, or, or the Blinken has not contacted his, his Russian counterpart, is really astounding. Mm -hmm. Because uh, anyone would think from the outside that uh, the most powerful nation in the world would be able to uh, discuss, and would want to discuss with a country that invaded another nation. How to, how to resolve the issue and how to end it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what any reasonable person would think. But the U.S. has never been interested in diplomacy. They're interested, as I mentioned, in, in power and profit. And if they want something uh, from another country, it's not going to be through diplomatic channels that they get it. It's going to be through war. That very much might, makes right uh, philosophy in this. We also have to add to the mix the fact that President Joe Biden is very unpopular at the present time. He has—the uh, the midterm elections are coming up in a few months. The Democrats are expected to do very poorly. He doesn't want—he's walking a fine line, a political line, not a human rights line or mm -hmm. national law or national justice line. He doesn't want to alienate people who oppose war, which is why he has not—or one reason he hasn't sent troops to Ukraine. On the other hand, he wants to appear strong against Russia— uh, which is why he has issued uh, the many sanctions that he has. However, the the idea that the United States believes Russia is in serious about negotiations is ludicrous when the United States has not asked Russia if they're serious about negotiations. Mm -hmm. The key, they can't know. If the United States doesn't want to uh, negotiate with France, that's one thing, and that's no criticism of France, but France isn't in the same position that the United States is in globally. Mm -hmm. So Blinken should talk to uh, Russian government officials and find out what their thoughts are so they can begin to negotiate 
and to bring an end to deadly war. Yeah, I mean, I think the lack of contact really speaks to a lack of interest in in actually resolving this. And it's been pointed out, you know, multiple times. Uh, it, the U.S. is playing a very big part behind the scenes in this conflict. I mean, not even behind the scenes, right, with the, their overt support for one side. And so I do think it is fair to assume, you know, w- without the U.S. being uh, at the table, there's there's not even necessarily all that much that Russia and Ukraine can do on their own. And so closing off all these channels of communication so you can't even be aware of what your adversary might want and might what they might be willing to settle for just seems to say what we don't want right now is for this war to end which is a terrible terrible thing to admit right and i think raises a lot of issues about you know what what are we gaining from this conflict what is our interest in it other than our stated interest to help ukraine defend itself but not quite well enough to win the war and one of the one of the interests not stated is, of course, the U.S. is sending uh, all kinds of weaponry to uh, weaponry to the Ukraine, mm-hmm. and military contracts with the United States uh, spend billions of dollars lobbying Congress, and mm-hmm. those those members of Congress don't want to jeopardize uh, those campaign contributions, and so. By sending uh, armaments to not only Ukraine but throughout the world, where the United States sends them, this gives their uh, their lobby owners, because that's, that's what mm-hmm. the, the lobbyists buy these these Congress people. Really, uh, it pleases them and it ensures that they will continue to get the uh, do, the donations that the lobbyists give them. Again, nothing about human rights or international law, mm-hmm. about power and profit. Let me also ask you, uh, I want to ask about some of the conversations we are seeing about Africa, China, and Russia uh, as we prepare for, I think, another Cold War that is going to be played out and is being played out on foreign battlefields. Foreign Affairs had a story out on, uh, it's talking about a what it calls a troubling anti-democratic trend in West Africa. It notes that the region has seen four successful coups, one in Burkina Faso, two in Mali, one in Guinea, two unsuccessful coup attempts in Guinea-Bissau and Niger. Three democratically elected presidents have defied constitutional term limits to win third terms in office. That's in Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, also in Guinea before the coup. And so... This story puts some blame on uh, weak regional organizations that don't punish autocratic tendencies enough, but also says that Western countries have scaled back their promotion of democratization in favor of other priorities, such as countering China, fighting violent extremism, stemming migration, and securing access to African markets. At the same time, China, Russia, Turkey, and other authoritarian powers have grown more active in West Africa. And now, you know, they they are supporting these leaders with investments in infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, the story says, listen, okay, there's a lot of bad news, but we should have hope because there's this surge of power from the West African populations, particularly among young people, and they're using new technology and old school protests to advocate for better governance, and and we should support them. And any time I see an article like this, any article that says like, hey, well, the U.S. should really support the will of the people in whatever region, it's always like it's presenting a new idea, right? This idea that the United States has sort of forgotten about Africa rather than that the United States and its uh, rich 
nation allies have created policies that benefit us to, you know, at, at the expense of these different regions of the world. Like any anytime an, an article ignores that entire sort of superstructure, I think you should be very suspicious of it. So there is the first hurdle there. Um, but I also wonder what you think we should make of this talk of competing with China and Russia in Africa, just in general, right? Because I'm seeing more and more, there was another opinion piece in the Hill this morning saying, like, it's time for re-engagement with Africa. Like, again, like we have forgotten about it, like engagement doesn't exist. It is there. It's doing what we want it to do. And so I wonder um, how you expect to see our cold conflict with China and perhaps with Russia uh, play out in, in West Africa. It's not going to play out in any way that's going to be uh, beneficial to the people throughout Africa. That's, that's certain because uh, Western countries have been uh, imperial nations. They've used uh, African countries as in their colonies for years. They aren't officially anymore, but they, the colonization policies and uh, traditions still exist. And uh, many countries, the United States among them and, and many others, continue to basically rape and pillage the countries of Africa for their natural resources, uh, making tremendous amounts of money while paying the people there pennies for the long and hard and dangerous work that they do. Mm -hmm. So now with this uh, conflict between Russia, uh, the U.S., and China being played out in part uh, on the African continent, we're going to see more uh, more unrest, certainly, uh, more autocratic gover governments, because that's the kind that uh, are most pleasing to the United States and, and Russia and China, because they will do as they're told. Mm -hmm. Those government officials will become very wealthy as they're uh, people become poorer and poorer, but having been installed by another country, and often the United States, they will do the U.S.'s bidding, and uh, this is only going to be more conflict because with Russia and China also vying for power there, mm -hmm. there'll be more unrest, more uncertainty, uh, more violent overthrows. And more suffering of the people. And none of this will ever be described, I, I would expect, in our media as about, you know, our our national interests competing with theirs. It will all be about how the United States is supporting democracy in this or that country. And whatever it is that China and Russia are supporting, it's the opposite of that. And it's bad. And we'll just sort of further muddy our own understanding of our foreign policy and what drives it. Absolutely. And then, as, as was mentioned in my most recent book, talks about propaganda, propagandizing false flags, how the U.S. justifies its wars. So the U.S. will, when necessary, decide to make a, quote, humanitarian intervention, mm -hmm. quote, in some nation that whose government is too left-leaning to please the government, whose government does not, uh, would, would prefer to work with China and Russia than the United States, mm -hmm. then we'll see, uh, quote, humanitarian, the, the U.S. will invade to save democracy. Right. Talk some puppet government that is cruel and brutal and oppressive and say, look at the wonderful things you've done. Right. Uh, everyone applaud. Uh, that was journalist Robert Fantina. Robert, why don't you tell our listeners where they can get your book and where they can find your most recent work? Uh, the book is available on Amazon.com or any place where books are sold. Uh, my articles appear on Counterpunch, Mondo Wise, and uh, many other uh, other 
our um, websites regularly. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Robert Fantino. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and uh, come right back to talk some criminal injustice. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with Michelle Witte. I am very pleased to introduce our next guest. Jeffrey Deskovich grew up in Peekskill, New York, where, by his own admission, he was shy and unpopular. Angela Correa was a classmate of his. When Jeffrey was 16 and Angela was 15, Angela was raped and murdered. Her body was found two days later. At her wake and funeral, Jeffrey was distraught and he was crying. The police believed that this behavior was suspicious, if you can imagine such a thing. So they took Jeffrey into custody without his parents or any attorney being present. And they coerced him into confessing that he had killed her. He almost immediately withdrew that confession. DNA evidence excluded Jeffrey as the killer. In fact, when the DNA was tested, it was found to match another man who was serving a life sentence for another killing. But Jeffrey was prosecuted nonetheless, and he was convicted of the rape and murder of his friend and sentenced to life in prison. The Innocence Project took up his case, and in 2006, after 16 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit, Jeffrey was finally exonerated Confronted with the DNA evidence, the actual perpetrator confessed to the crime, to the authorities, and to a reporter on camera. In 2006, all of those charges against Jeffrey were dismissed on actual innocence grounds, and he was released, whereas the actual perpetrator, Stephen Cunningham, was arrested, confessed, and then pleaded guilty. A subsequent independent review of the case by two retired judges, along with the former Staten Island District Attorney and Richard Josephson of Legal Aid, criticized police and the former prosecutor for failure to pursue other leads and for downplaying the DNA evidence that led to Jeffrey's exoneration, while Jeffrey's public defender was criticized as well. According to the report, errors were made throughout the entire case including tunnel vision by both police and the previous prosecutor, along with a reliance on profiling, which turned out to be completely incorrect, followed by deliberate downplaying of the DNA evidence that ultimately proved that Jeffrey was innocent. This case is shocking, it is sickening, and it is an egregious example of everything that can go wrong in the criminal justice system. And I wanted to point out, too, that the prosecutor in this case is the famed Judge Jeanine Pirro, formerly of Fox News, uh, Donald Trump's favorite judge. And still, after all these years, she refuses to acknowledge that she had done anything wrong. I have some questions about um, things like profiling. Right. And some of the things that seem to have gone really wrong in this case, because, you know, even as we are discussing how inexact 
these sciences, right? Sciences with some air quote around them. How inexact some of these sciences can be um, that that are used to put people sure. away for sometimes their entire lives. Sure. There's also a real uh, like a celebration of the of these sciences in the world of true crime, right? Mm-hmm. We had Mind Hunter, sure, which was a look. It was a fun show to watch, not least because the dude who played Ed Kemper was right. so great. Um, but it is you a real. You believed it was actually him. Uh, he's. I love him so much. <laughs> it's just terrible. <laughs> I don't think Ed Kemper is supposed to be like a sympathetic or attractive character, but oh, just so cute. Um, but so we have this sort of celebration of the the rise of the sort of psychological sure. profiling and understanding of monsters or whatever. Um, but it seems like. Over and over, what happens is you take it, you take something like this that I'm sure has some utility, right? And some application, and you put it in the hands of police forces who may be more interested in uh, in closing cases and getting paperwork That's off right. their desk That's than right. uh, than actually, you know, discovering the truth and achieving what we would understand as justice. And yet, you know, it's sort of sold to the American people as another reason to actually trust law enforcement. Yes. Oh, nothing ever goes wrong with profile. Oh, blood spatter. Right. No, that's legit. Sure. Fiber, Bite you know, fibers, whatever. Yeah, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And again, it just is like it. This is all sort of useful if you want to put together a tapestry, right, that you can infer something from. But instead, it is sort of like, here's a new tech solution to uh, questions of guilt and innocence. No need to trouble your pretty little head about it. It's fine. The, the, The blood splatter says so. You know, I've said a hundred times that one of the shows that I'm addicted to is Law and Order, mm-hmm. right? And they they run them constantly, constantly on like four different networks on cable. So I was watching one over the weekend and uh, McCoy wanted to introduce some um, some uh, DNA evidence. So he goes to the judge. He said, there's this thing now called DNA and he's trying to explain it to her. And she said, I don't know. It sounds like science fiction to me. And, and she wouldn't let the DNA evidence in. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy how the science changes, but what you're saying is very important because a lot of this isn't science. It's pseudoscience. It's phony science, like bite mark analysis. Yeah. Or uh, how many times have we seen, um, we've seen information, evidence, so-called evidence coming out of labs that was just, that was just made to, uh, made to say what the prosecution or the police wanted it to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. And I think that also, you know, from our vantage point in 2022, it all looks sort of uh, low tech. Yeah. Right. It it looks sort of uh, low tech and maybe kind of hokey, but we are in the midst of the same process with things right now, like facial recognition. Right. Facial recognition and this other sort of cutting edge stuff. This is okay. Look, blood spatter, bite mark analysis. All right. Maybe all that was a little bit questionable, but facial recognition, guys, it's on the video. It comes out of a machine. So there's no possibility of error. And we are, you know, 20 years from now going to, I think, uh, look back and think, no, we were again sort of sold a bill of goods. Yeah. And it just becomes a tool to railroad people, which is not to say, again, that. You shouldn't try try to find people who are guilty of terrible murders sure, like these. Absolutely but agree. It is it, we keep being presented with these new things that are going to somehow take the humanity out of this this process of of finding uh, perpetrators. Right, right. 
And it just can't be done. And I think it sort of gets in the way of actually wrestling with uh, this question of who, who are the people who are who are doing this work and, you know, what, what kind of people are they and how much should we trust them? Yes, you're absolutely right. You know, and, and one of the things that I think is dangerous, too, is this move toward predictive analysis. Uh, I, I was watching uh, th- this this wonderful show over the weekend, uh, Very Scary People, right? That it's sounds on, really good. Oh, it's awesome. Uh, very Scary People, and uh, they were interviewing a, a professor of uh, forensic psychology from the University of Arizona. Mm-hmm. And he said what he wanted to do was take brain scans of serial killers to see if the brain of a sociopath lights up differently than the brain of just an average normal person. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to exclude people who might have dementia and dementia doesn't run in his family. So he asked um, his parents, his kids uh, to do brain scans. He, he did a brain scan on himself and then he had Jeffrey Dahmer's uh, brain scanned. and so. He was looking through the scans and he was showing them on this show and they're all lit up in different colors, red, blue, purple, yellow, all different colors. And then there's one that's just dull. And he said, this is clearly the, the brain of a sociopath. And then he said he took off the, the little white label that was covering up the names and it was his Oh, no. <laughs> and so he he said something to one of his assistants and he said, hey, you guys, uh, you're pulling a fast one on me. And they said, no, that they hadn't touched them, that this was really the the double blind. And he said he realized that he's a sociopath, but he's smart enough to have never acted on his urges. And then very matter of factly. I mean, this is a or guy just acts with, on them in different ways. You know what I mean? Like sure. there are lots of sociopaths among us who are not uh, murdering. That's people. right. Lots. And that's what he said. Or who aren't murdering people with their own hands. And, and he said, you know, like somebody would cut him off in traffic and he'd say, I'd like to cut that guy's head off. Right. But he doesn't actually cut the guy's head off. Yeah. He just goes on with his day. Does it make you a sociopath if you ever think that? I think we all think stuff like that. But, uh, but sociopaths, remember, are unable to feel remorse or regret. They'll they'll climb to the top of their of their professions on the on the backs of the people around them, and you know, hey, that's life. And then just enjoy life at the top. That's why so many Fortune 500 companies are. I mean, run this by is yeah, this is exactly the thing, right? When you were trying to predict, you know, you could look at someone who has all of the uh, uh, all of the precursors for becoming a terrible person, or even something less than serial killing. Just like, are you going to abuse your kid? You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sometimes people who have been abused sort of perpetuate those cycles and sometimes people don't. Right. It's just like all of this stuff. Eventually is inexact. Yes. And doesn't substitute for actual research with, you know, an actual uh, actual skepticism Mm -hmm. in the process. Right. And an actual lack of bias. Right. And trying to work toward that is, is, I think, more laudable than trying to find the, you know, the magic machine. That is going to, yeah. uh, you know, that, that can be our final arbiter of truth so we don't have to use our little brains anymore. After that very powerful intro, we're having some technical difficulties getting Jeffrey Deskovich uh, no, on the line. Very we're, disappointing. We're continuing to, to work on it. But anyway, I wanted to tell you uh, something else. There was a, an episode of this show, okay. uh, Very Scary People. Mm-hmm. It's on 
uh, HLN, I believe, on Sunday nights. And yesterday, they, they do double episodes. So each each serial killer that they profile is for two hours. Uh, this was a guy named uh, Israel Keys, who I'd never heard oh, of. Oh, yeah, I know Israel Keys. You know Israel Keys, the cross-country yep. killer. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he ended up being accused, formally accused of of uh, raping two girls, not even women, raping two girls and then murdering one and then murdering a couple. The girl was in Alaska. Well, he, the dude had like, he had like drop in, bags in places. With exactly his tools right. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. had drop bags, like kill bags. Like a steel trap this mine. Amazing. I never <laughs> heard of the guy. That's amazing. Yeah, how do you, John? Well, they ran these, they ran video of his interrogations and he said something that was so chilling. He served during the uh, the first Gulf War. And he said, everybody was just killing everybody. It was easy. There was no fallout from it. You just, you know, go to the battlefield and just start shooting at the other guy. And he said, well, this is kind of fun. Yeah. And, uh, and so he went back and just decided, I'm going to start killing people. Yeah. And that's what he did. Now, he ended up committing suicide in prison while awaiting trial. And he slashed his wrists. And then just to make sure he did it right, he, he hung himself, too. But he left a suicide note, and then next to the suicide note, he had he had drawn the images of eleven skulls, and so it oh, led so authorities more, to believe yeah. that there were more than just the or three. Or is he just being a drama queen? And it could be that too. Um, because we're having trouble getting our guest, I have time to tell you the story that I didn't get to in the intro of the show that I think is interesting, and also furthers a theme that has emerged in the last couple of weeks, which is California. Doing interesting things as a state, yeah, but not necessarily providing a model for other states because California is itself such a huge economy, gigantic, you know, economy. like such a such a uh, powerhouse, right? But so the latest thing that California is apparently going to embark on is producing its own insulin. Yes. Uh, Gavin Newsom announced this, the governor of California. The project has a $100 million budget. Half of that is going to go, oh, whatever. They, they, you can see how it breaks down. I'm not going to pretend I remember. Um, but the project is to contract and make uh, California's own insulin at a cheaper pl- price close to at cost and make it available to everyone. When this is going to happen, what the actual cost will be, we don't know those details yet. But a CNBC story on this uh, noted that insulin in the United States costs almost $100 per unit on average. That is nearly four times the price in Chile, which is the second highest prices among 34 OECD countries uh, that were recently analyzed. Um, So Chile is, is less than $25 per unit. So wow. we have the U.S. at $100, Chile at $25, and the rest below. Here are some other things I did not know about diabetes, insulin, and the United States. According to the CDC, 37.3 million people in America have diabetes, and more than 8 million use insulin daily. Yeah, I use it four times a day. Four in five Americans in need of insulin. This is this is the, the horror show part now. Um, four in five Americans in need of insulin have incurred thousands of dollars in credit card debt oh my god to pay for the medication this is according oh to a god, survey that's will inexcusable. Be, this is according to a survey by healthcare organization charity rx their survey was of 2000 people so it was 1000 insured and 1000 uninsured um so not the biggest number you know, of people that i've ever heard of but listen the average debt among survey participants was $9000 
right? $9,000 among people trying, just trying to pay for their insulin. Uh, the high cost has led to an estimated one in every four people with diabetes to ration or skip their doses. Oh and this my. is according to a study in 2019. And the economic picture in the United States has not gotten better no, since it's gotten then. gotten worse. That's uh, according to the uh, JAMA Internal Medicine uh, Journal. So, you know, the, the story says it's it's unclear if any other states plan to follow suit. You know, this is something that we've talked about. We've talked about in um, in the context of other sort of health care reforms, in the absence of federal action, what can states do? And people have repeatedly cautioned against states trying to enact their own single payer health care systems right. because states don't have the state governments don't have the same economic power and flexibility that a national sovereign government has. But California is this really interesting outlier, mm -hmm. you know, because it does it, it you know, it doesn't have its own currency yet. There's no ca yeah. cow bucks or whatever, but right. they probably can reliably make enough money and manage their money so that they can put into place, uh, you know, reforms like this, making their own insulin. The one we were talking about last week was extending, I think it was extending Medicaid coverage to all people, regardless of immigration status or age, right. who, who were income eligible. That's right. Right. So this is interesting. But I mean, thinking about those statistics, right, people going Shocking. into credit card debt to pay for their insulin, 25 percent of people who need insulin here rationing or skipping it because they need to be able to pay for it. And you think, what is this? What is this society that we are so dedicated to upholding and never allowing to change? Right. And never envisioning or even testing out any different options. This is what we've decided is as good as it can possibly get and better not tinker with anything or, you know, it's, it's hell in a handbasket. It's, you know, I've said a thousand times on the show that this is the best health insurance I've ever had in my life. Mm -hmm. the, the health insurance that we're offered here at Sputnik. Um, my ex mother-in-law did not have health insurance and she was not, uh, she didn't meet the age requirement for Medicare. Uh, and so she rationed her insulin and then at the age of 62 had a massive stroke and died just like that. She she rationed her insulin for years and you can't do that. No, no, you can't do that. And also, apparently what you can't do is find a way to get any more money out of the billionaires that yeah. we have created in That's this society. Right. What we can't do is you know, uh, uh, leave some of our uh, freedom that we love so much to choose any doctor from within our network. You know what I mean? Like this idea that we have all this choice. Oh, no, you'd have to go to a government doctor or something. Yeah, just like, I right. don't care. Yeah. I don't care. I don't care I don't want to have the choice of a, of a health insurance option. Mm -hmm. I don't want to look at a list of plans. This isn't freedom, right? This is just, uh, you know, this is this is a uh, wage slavery that we are forced to live under because of the system. It's just, it's astonishing to me to just sort of come across these yeah. statistics casually included in an article about how California is going to try to do something that other states better not attempt. Right. Because they run a greater risk of, of going bankrupt and then everyone going, oh, see, that's why it doesn't work. Right. You know? Right. California, man, could be a great place to uh, to move if and it wasn't you know, always on fire or maybe about to fall off the continent. That's right. Such and a it's, bummer. It's just in time for Gavin Newsom to run for president against Joe Biden. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. We actually got 
uh, Jeff Deskovich uh-huh. uh, on the line. But we it, also we have one minute left in the. Uh, <laughs> No. Yeah, we have to take we have to take this hard break now. Yes. Um, But why don't you what are you going to start with, John, when we come to the other side? Uh, If he's still on the line. Yeah, I'd like to uh, to ask him about his experience and what he's been doing uh, since getting out of prison. He's done a lot of really great work uh, in uh, in the area of uh, sentencing reform and criminal justice reform. So that's what we're going to have to do. We'll take a break here. We'll come back. We'll have this conversation that we've been intending to have on uh, this criminal injustice system that we live under and yep. how one man has managed to get through it. Then we'll get into some more domestic politics. Yep. We'll take a little preview of what Steve Bannon might have to say to the January 6th commission. And we will get into Chile's new constitution and whether we should be excited about it, scared of it, or something in ah. between. All that will be coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. And we will be right back. Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. As we told you in the last half hour, uh, Jeffrey Deskovich was the victim of an incredible injustice. We now have him on the phone. He's the founder of the Jeffrey Deskovich Foundation for Justice and is an advocate for criminal justice reform. After being released from prison, he earned bachelor's degree in behavioral science from Mercy College, a master's degree in criminal justice from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and a law degree from Pace University. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on. I don't I almost don't even know where to begin. Uh you you have been the victim of such an incredible injustice of everything that's wrong with the criminal justice system. Uh the report that was written about your case found that the police decided that you were guilty and then they didn't bother to follow the facts of the case. They just fold, f- focused solely on you. The, the prosecutor, Janine Pirro, who went on to great riches, by the way, uh, wouldn't even consider the notion that you were innocent, despite the fact that the evidence proved you were innocent. How were you able to keep hope alive over those 16 years? How did you keep people on the outside interested in your case? Yeah, so uh, a couple things. So in terms of how did I keep like uh, how did I keep uh, hope alive? Well, let me just say this: Bureau was not the prosecutor when I was convicted, but she she took office before the first appeal was decided. So she fought all seven of my appeals. She oh boy, getting further testing. So I just want to clarify her role. She's definitely a villain in all this, just not at the trial level. Um, but having cleared that up, coming to how did I keep it going? Uh, my hope going. Uh, it was a combination, like a lot of things in life, a lot of things are true at the same time. So definitely belief in God was one thing. Uh, another thing was that I didn't concentrate on that I had a 15-to-life sentence. I thought that was just doing a year or two until the next appeal would be decided, which I was sure I was going to win because I was innocent and I still believed in the system. I used to go to the law library and learn the law, and that gave a sense of empowerment. Mm-hmm. I used to collect and read articles about other people who were exonerated, and that was motivation to keep me going. Uh, I had this elaborate delusion 
that I engaged in when I would play like basketball or ping pong or chess. I would pretend I was a professional player and so was everyone else that I was playing. But it was not like kids fooling around in the playground. This was I needed I needed it was a there was a defense mechanism mm-hmm. I needed to try to escape the prison for a couple of hours. Uh, so those are the tactics. There was another wrongfully convicted prisoner there named Frank Sterling, and we used to meet up once every six weeks, and half the conversation would be about keeping our morale going, and the other part would be brainstorming about the next move uh, to make to try to get out of there. Frank was ultimately exonerated by DNA testing a couple wow. of me. Uh, in terms of how did I keep interest going on my case in the street, uh, I, I didn't. I, I was not able to. So, I mean, I, I fought the state appeals with the attorney they gave me. Then when my appeals were over, uh, they um, didn't give me a lawyer for the federal court. So, hence, I had to uh, write letters. I wrote uh, letters looking for help. I wound up with an attorney that represented me in the in the federal system where, you know, I got time barred because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information, which Piero's office then jumped on and urged the court to simply rule that I was late, uh, which is what the court did. Uh, that was uh, Judge Sotomayor. Uh, and her colleague, uh, Rosemary Pula, who upheld that ruling twice, and I lost at the U.S. Supreme Court. They didn't grant me certiorari. So I wrote letters for four years after that looking for someone to take my case pro bono because when your appeals are over, the only way back in the court is if you can find new evidence. And so I didn't have any money to hire an investigator or attorney, hence writing letters for four years. Mm-hmm. All told, I lost seven appeals. I, oh, my God. Well, largely because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility. Ultimately, I was exonerated through further DNA testing through the DNA data bank, which not only reaffirmed the earlier result that it wasn't me, but it identified the actual perpetrator who subsequently confessed and was arrested for the crime, whereas my charges were all dismissed on actual innocence grounds. There's an old joke uh, that everybody in prison is innocent. But when when I went to prison, I found that that uh, that in part was true. Part of the problem is a tactic that prosecutors use called charge stacking, where they'll charge a person with numerous felonies, sometimes a dozen, two dozen felonies. And then just before trial, the prosecutor will offer to drop all the charges but one if you take a guilty plea. So what do you do? Do you take the deal, even though you're innocent, and just do a couple of years and make the whole thing go away? Or do you roll the dice and risk getting 20, 30, 50 years in prison? Knowing that most juries would convict a bologna sandwich, the old saying goes, uh, most people take the deal. And we know about your experience. Now, with the work that you're doing through your foundation, tell us about other innocent people in, in prison. Is there hope for many of them? Yeah, there could all of them have just the fact that my foundation exists, uh, that I started using some of the compensation I got. Uh, Jeffrey Duskovic Foundation for Justice, the fact that we exist and that other innocence organizations throughout the country exist and that even law firms and individual practitioners, more people are getting in uh, on the uh, trying to free wrongfully convicted people. I think that there is a subjective hope that, that they have. I think for most people, there's it's not really objective. Most of them, I mean, when you're, once you've been convicted, you the burden of proof shifts and you have to yes. now your innocent and uh, that's not reality for quite a bit of people they're never going to get representation and if they do you know it's not an easy thing to try to prove a negative so i think for most people they're not going to actually get out but i think that there nonetheless is hope for some people that they they can be proven uh innocent uh look i found that uh 
I, I found that while I was in prison, there weren't a lot of people that were falsely claiming uh, innocence because it's actually dis- a disadvantage to do so. Yeah, it is. Parole board, you maintain your innocence, you could get denied parole. Uh, they want you to take, uh, like, I, they wanted me to take a sex offender training program, which had the guilt admission requirement tied to it, and I was never going to do that. So, in those settings, uh, it, it works again. And plus, on top of that, innocence is not really something that people would discuss because, like, for me, like, if I'm incarcerated wrongfully for uh, a sex offense, I would not want to draw attention to myself. Yeah. I wouldn't talk about that. That having been said, yes, there are quite a bit of people that are, um, say, when they apply to innocence organizations or my organization, that claim to be innocent but, you know, actually are not. And I believe that that is why uh, part of the reason why the the waiting list that organizations have is, is so long. Uh, yeah. But, but from 1989 forward, I mean, the per the National Registry of Exoneration, there's more than 3,000 people that have been exonerated to date. So there are quite a bit of credible um, innocence claims, and I, I believe that you know that that number I mentioned; those are just those of us that have made it out. Yes, ones that are still in. You you actually anticipated my next question. One of the most pressing criminal justice issues out there is that of the death penalty. We reported here on the show last week that the state of Oklahoma intends to execute 25 people between August and December. In the meantime, we also know that since the death penalty was reimposed in 1973, 189 people have been exonerated and released from death row. Is it even possible to to ensure that innocent people aren't being subjected to the ultimate punishment of execution? There is not. No. And in fact, if you to, to, to uh, for, further illustrate the point that you just made, uh, the New York Times had a uh, there was an article. They published within the last couple of years that they uh, estimated that uh, like five percent of the people on on, on death row were were uh, were, were innocent. Wow. Uh, you know, it, so all the systemic deficiencies that lead to wrongful conviction in the non-capital cases exist in the capital cases, except that except with the added element that now there's a clock involved. So now you have someone with a poor education, with scant financial resources, you know, scrambling trying to find new evidence, you know, and before the, their appeals are over because then they'd be executed. So for me, my appeals were over in 2001, and I was not able to be exonerated until five years after that. So had I been just a couple of years older, uh, you know, I, there's a good chance my case would have been a capital case because it was community outrage. It was a rape along with the mur- that murder. Those factors are frequently what elevate right. Uh, one of the mill murder case to a capital case. So I'm sure I would have got it and I would not have, I wouldn't have been alive to be exonerated. And that's the problem with, that's one of the major problems with, with the death penalty. And then we kind of lulled into a false sense of security now as a society with the advent of DNA testing. We think it could never happen now, but I mean, look at what Rodney Reed in Texas. I mean, you know, yeah. people trying to get DNA testing, you know, um, um, Melissa Lucille, almost got executed while while there's significant evidence of innocence. Uh, other people in Tennessee, Sedley Alley, got executed while asking for DNA testing. Ugh. Given the test, they wouldn't even hold it up. Wow. Tell us about some of the work that you and the foundation have done to help people who've been wrongly convicted. What, what is it exactly that the uh, that the foundation can accomplish for people? Yeah, so number one, we, we free people that are wrongfully imprisoned. Mm-hmm. So we've been able to free 11 people thus far. Wow. 
Okay, so uh, we have 17 cases in progress right now. So number one, freeing people. And by that, the goal is exoneration. However, if we can free people through other legal means while efforts to exonerate continue, we do that. So for example, if any of our clients come up for parole, we urge the parole board to release them. We make our case while we believe they're innocent. And we ask them not to hold the innocence assertion against them, just evaluate the rest of the application. Yeah. You know, let them go home. So that's an example. That's why I say free rather than exonerate. So we freed 11. Uh, three of those are exonerations. Another one is a person is almost exonerated. They're waiting retrial. So coming back to your point, we free people. And secondly, we pursue policy changes. So uh, we were, we've been able in New York, for example, we were able to, with our partners and it can happen to you coalition, we passed the country's first oversight, independent oversight for prosecutors called the Commission on wow. Conduct. We helped pass discovery reform, which pertains to sharing information early and automatic in the process. What was happening before was prosecutors were turning evidence of witnesses over on the eve of a hearing, on the eve of a trial. Now it's automatic early in the process. So um, those things, uh, DNA database expansion, we helped pass a bill that provided for better, more accurate identification procedures, as well as a bill that pertains to videotaping interrogations. So that's in terms of past accomplishments. What we're working on now is, number one, when they pass that bill on the interrogations, uh, the then governor of New York, uh, Cuomo, made switch cheese of it. He made exceptions for murder cases, sex offenses, and drug cases. So we want Get rid of those exceptions. So that's a, that's a goal now. Another thing is in New York, we're pushing the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act. And what that does is that that would provide counsel for people in post-conviction uh, proceedings. So I wouldn't have to wait four years, for example. I would automatically be provided that. And there's another gap in the law in New York. So let's say you have a crappy lawyer. The lawyer convinces you to plead guilty because they're not doing any investigation. They're not finding your evidence of innocence. You lose confidence in, in the lawyer. You know that you're going to get all this time like you illustrated before. So you take a deal. Now, subsequent to that, you find good attorneys who find this evidence of innocence that wasn't, that wasn't right. turned up before. You're not allowed to argue you're innocent in court with that. Your lawyers, I have a case now in, in Erie County, uh, Omar Clark. That's the exact scenario. And instead of being able to argue that my client's innocent, that this is newly discovered evidence, I'm stuck arguing that this is simply proof that his lawyer did an inadequate investigation. So that's another issue that we're working on in New York. Now, in Pennsylvania, um, you know, it's, it's uh, in the north, it's in the east. We're thinking that, you know, it's progressive. It's not. It's one of 12 states that does not compensate people who are wrongfully imprisoned. So working on that. And then in California, we're trying to export that oversight of prosecutors. We're trying to export that to uh, California. Tell us a little bit about uh, your work at the Restorative Justice International. What is Restorative Justice International? All right. So it's an international organization, meaning the members are made up of throughout throughout the world. You know, restorative justice is, is an alternative uh, model rather than just a punitive model. It's saying let's try to restore people back to the state that they were in prior to being harmed, prior to being wronged. So, um, so that's that's what that is. And in terms of what I do with them, is they are they and they're not a nonprofit, so they are allowed to endorse political candidates. And so, candidates of either political party that are running on a criminal justice reform uh, plank, uh, they have a questionnaire. I recommend candidates for them to endorse. And uh, and th- then they decide if they're going to endorse them or not. They're, they do a podcast interview, help candidates get their plank out there. But beyond that, 
But when they as an organization are considering to take a position on a criminal justice issue, uh, so I, I lay an issue out for them. So in the first case, I try to just be a reporter, keep my opinion out of it. I lay mm-hmm. all sides of an issue out. And then I, then I become a columnist and I say, look, and out of all that, here's what my position is. Here's why. This is what I think you guys should decide. And then they take a, they take a vote. Almost, and then, you know, and sometimes they go with, um, with what I say. And uh, they haven't yet disagreed with me, but they theoretically could. So I'm kind of like their in-house advisor on criminal justice issues. Uh, what is recharge beyond the bars reentry game? That's something that that I've not heard of. Are, are you involved with it? Yeah, I co I co own it. So the owner uh, therapist by the name of Leslie Robinson, she created the game, and uh, she brought it to me, and uh, I played it, and uh, I believed in it. So I decided that as my way of trying to give back to people who were incarcerated, uh, recognizing that there were old timers, people in the, in the prison that, that showed me the ropes. And I met people on parole that, uh, were guilty, but that have turned their lives around mm-hmm. crime free life. So, um, what I found myself is that the hardest thing of transitioning it was, is it was communicating. Like I remember my brother told me, I don't know what to say. I don't know what not to say. I don't know what to ask. I don't know what not to ask. Yeah. So, Many people feel that way. So recharge comes in the middle and removes that awkwardness by posing icebreaker questions, you know, so that can re, can, re, uh, can facilitate uh, the joining of ties again amongst family members, formerly incarcerated people with, with uh, other formerly incarcerated people or with people from their from their past, old friends, et cetera. So that's what the game does. And it was just my, my way of trying to give back while also um, being a little bit entrepreneurial. Excellent. And Jeffrey, uh, how can people learn more about your work and uh, and perhaps help and get involved? Sure. So there's definitely uh, my website, uh, www.deskovic, that's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C, uh, .org. They can also follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook as, as well. And in terms of helping out, so a couple of ways. Uh, so firstly, we do have a Patreon page, which is for people who are willing to be recurring monthly donors. Mm-hmm. My ultimate vision is this. I, I see wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue. It's not a New York problem. It's not an American problem. It's a worldwide issue. And if we're having this many wrongful convictions in, in, a, in a country we would consider to be first world, imagine what's going on in third world countries where they're not quite as uh, advanced. Yeah. So I see this is a worldwide issue. I'd love to ultimately have a chapter of the foundation in each state and in each country. So uh, one, of, one of the things I've thought about is, you know, politicians of either political party raise tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars with what they refer to as small dollar donations. Yeah. What if there were 25,000 people that were willing to free wrongfully convicted people and uh, by sacrificing 3 to $5 on a recurring monthly basis? So definitely the Patreon, uh, being a donor, getting word out there, whether social media, word of mouth. Uh, another thing is uh, if you work at an organization that engages in uh, corporate philanthropy, think about bringing us to their attention. Uh, if you do a blog, podcast, uh, blog talk radio, uh, consider interviewing us as well. If you know other people that do that, bring us to their uh, attention. Uh, but also in whatever state, like in Pennsylvania, California, New York, where we're working on bills, you know, politicians are only going to vote for bills. Yeah. It's not based on morality. It's not based on what's right and wrong and whether even something makes sense or not. It's only if they're if they're convinced that getting elected or getting reelected, that the public cares about yeah. the issue, that's when we're going to get things done. So we need people uh, to contact their elected officials and urge them to vote in, in support of things like the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act or, you know, videotaping interrogations. That's right. So 
to do that, and we need people to show up at events. When there's there's a rally, if there's a wrongful conviction event, you can do that. There's plenty of wrongful conviction documentaries and movies. You can have a movie night, a documentary night. Uh, those are just uh, those are just some of the ways. I, I hope some of the people consider going into the field. I mean, if you're an attorney, then That's you should right. do at least one case pro bono in your life, at least. Amen to that. The the lead attorney, one of the lead attorneys in my case, um, has made so much money for himself over the years. He doesn't need any more money. He's a senior partner, the senior partner in his firm. So now he only does pro bono death penalty appeals. And he has gotten 13 people off of death row um, over the last 20 years. It's pretty remarkable. Well, we're going to have to leave it uh, at, at that. Jeffrey Deskovic, thank you for joining us. Jeffrey is the founder of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice and is an advocate for criminal justice reform. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, but I think we are not going to go to a break. Is that right? Yeah, we can just go straight to our next guest. Yeah, we, and I think we have our next guest on. Mm-hmm. Um, President Biden is not our not guest. Our guest. <laughs> But he is preparing to leave for Israel and for Saudi Arabia uh, in the next day or so. And he's even cognizant. He's he's cognizant enough. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. Cognizant enough of Americans complaints about bowing to Saudi crown prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman in the name of cheaper oil. Cognizant enough that he published an op-ed in yesterday's Washington Post, ostensibly written by Joe Biden, in which he said that he's going to the region to further strengthen U.S. relationships with regional powers, which already have improved compared to what they were under Donald Trump. Closer U.S.-Saudi ties, he said, would be good for Yemen, would be good for peace, and would even be good for Ukraine. Okay, maybe, probably not. In other news, just one day after Donald Trump said that he would waive executive privilege for documents related to Steve Bannon, Bannon said that he would testify before the January 6th committee. Bannon was supposed to go on trial a week from today on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress. We're going to talk about that and more with journalist and writer Dan Lazar. Welcome back, Dan. Uh, Thanks for having me. Oh, Dan, this is going to be a fun one. Uh, it, it seems to me that the only reason to make this trip in the first place is to ask the Saudis, with your hat in hand, like I said, to increase oil production. A secondary reason may be to beg the Saudis to enter into some sort of a regional security arrangement with Israel. Am I missing anything? Is there any other reason? That really, no, that really sums it up. But the um, but the the third thing is that Saudi Arabia really has no reason to uh, to cater to U.S. Uh, interests. I mean, You're I mean, exactly uh, right. I mean, Mohammed Mohammed bin Salman likes high oil prices. I mean, he likes the he likes the strange boomerang effect. Oh yes, that the, uh, the 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 Ukraine war has caused. I mean, it's filling his coffers. I mean, remember a few years ago, Saudi Arabia was in serious economic trouble, but now it's bounced back. Revenue was high. Oil prices are 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 you know above a hundred dollars a barrel. Uh, everything is hunky dory. So uh, so the last thing that that Mohammed bin Salman wants to do is to is step up production, you know, increase the supply of oil in the world, and therefore put a damper on prices. That's completely contrary to his his own self interest. Yeah, I think that's right. 
Um, what what's the political risk to Biden here? His poll ratings are at truly historic lows. No other president since the advent of polling has has been so low in the polls as Michelle told us at the start of the show. Even among Democrats, Democrats don't want him to run Mm-mm. again. So what happens if he goes to Saudi Arabia and then he returns and he has nothing to show for it? Then what? Yeah. He- you know, I'm starting to feel sorry for the guy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he really, he really can't can't get a break. I mean, uh, gas prices are, are are shooting to the roof. Oil prices are 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 inflated, and that's really hurting Biden, Biden in a serious way at the polls. I mean, essentially, gasoline prices in America in 2022 are the same thing as bread prices in France in 1789. <laughs> so when the price goes too high, the peasants get really upset. <laughs> and that and that bodes very poorly for those in charge. Now, um, and but yet at the same time, it's just so obvious that, that Biden is approaching Ben Salman from, from a position of weakness. Yeah. And 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 then Salman will probably. I mean, I guess he'll throw him a few crumbs. It's kind of makes sense from his point of view. But you know, but but Biden is you know, it's really humiliating himself. So he's really underscoring his own weakness, and and that doesn't do that doesn't augur well for a politician at the polls. No. I mean, voters can sense when a politician is weak. When he lacks self-confidence, when his policies don't make sense, they may not know that every last detail, that every last in and out of a specific policy, but they can sense when things aren't going going well, when the White House is losing control, when the White House is clearly, you know, floundering, and that obviously applies to to Biden, whose policies are increasingly incoherent across a wide number of global theaters of operation, whether it's the Ukraine, the South China Sea, the Persian Gulf, none of it adds up. None of it makes sense. Biden is also going to meet in Jeddah with the rulers of Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman. Those are the countries that make up the Gulf Cooperation Council. Do you think we should expect anything there? And the reason I ask is, Kuwait and Abu Dhabi have vast amounts of oil. Qatar has the world's largest gas reserves. Will Biden be lobbying them too? Oh, I assume he will. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Biden wants to bring down energy prices, both for gas and oil, and and the producers have the opposite incentive. They want to keep uh, keep them up, keep them uh, keep them strong and firm. Now, I mean, I, I imagine these people will probably throw a few bones Biden's way because they want to they want to keep him on 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 their side. But they're also aware of of how weak uh, the U.S. U.S and how just how fundamentally confused its policies are. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is, I mean, foreign policy is doing very poorly. The U.S. is not, you know, it's not winning the, the majority of the world over to the uh, to its side with regard to the, to the Ukraine. The G20 meeting was a real disaster for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and the U.S. finds itself uh, isolated, scorned and essentially paying the price for decades of policies that were just represented, you know, double standards in extremists. And the world is tired of that. 
The world is tired of America's America preaching one thing and doing the opposite. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they're just not inclined to go along with U.S. diktat anymore. Now, especially that it's clear that U.S. Policy, US power is on the wane uh, in, in global terms. Yes, agreed. Uh, Donald Trump over the weekend sent Steve Bannon a letter which said in part, quote, when you first received the subpoena to testify and provide documents, I invoked executive privilege. However, I watched how unfairly you and others have been treated, having to spend vast amounts of money on legal fees and all of the trauma you must be going through for the love of your country and out of respect for the office of the president. Therefore, if you reach an agreement on a time and place for your testimony, I will waive executive privilege for you, which allows you to go in and testify truthfully and fairly. He went on to call the January 6th committee a group of thugs and hacks. Um, The issue is that Bannon never could invoke uh, executive privilege in the first place. He left the White House years before the January 6th riot. Um, He was due to go on trial or is due to go on trial a week from today for contempt of Congress. Uh, Do you think we'll learn anything new from Steve Bannon? And I ask that question because uh, one of the prosecutors who is advising the January 6th committee said that no matter what Bannon has to say, uh, his testimony will be legally irrelevant. What do you make of all that? Well, I, I mean, I think the January 6th uh, committee is, 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 I think that's petering out also. I mean, they, they hired a sort of CBS news producer to give their show pizzazz. Um, and it worked for a bit, but I think it's really flagging, flagging at this point. Um, I think the, uh, uh, the the testimony by Cassidy, uh, what's her last name? Uh, Hutchinson, is that right? Hutchinson, yes. Yep. I mean, I, I think it really had a limited impact. She was effectively rebutted by members of the Secret Service. Um, and the, the whole thing has the sense of yet another Adam Schiff production, mm. you know, right. where, 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 the, where, the, where the, the, the Democrats, you know, you know, you know, line up, you know, sort of, you know, throw everything they can at Trump. You know, they seem to score a few hits, but then the public grows skeptical because it's all so one-sided and all so clearly self-serving. And and Trump is unmoved, unshaken, uh, and the Dem- and the Republicans begin to realize that the Democrats are once again, you know, kind of just overstating their case. Yeah. Uh, and 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 not all that much new has come out of the out of the committee. I mean, it was really pretty clear what happened. I, mean, I agree with the committee mm-hmm. that it was a clear cut case of an attempted coup d'état. Yeah. I, I think that that it's it's quite clear that Trump was you know was out to interrupt, terminate the the, the vote certification process. Um, he wanted to push you know push Pence into somehow repudiating the the, the state yeah. tallies mm-hmm. that were before him and somehow do some kind of swift you know strange maneuver that would have thrown the uh, the whole contest into the, into the House. <coughs> Excuse me, where the Republicans have a clear advantage. But now it seems that the, the, the Supreme Court may very well move next year to finish the job by essentially approving this uh, this 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 
doctrine in Article 1, which gives total and exclusive power to state legislatures, not state courts, not state governors, right. but the legislators alone on how to run elections and how to tally the results. And if the court does fulfill the you know the the uh, you know the, the the worst expectations of those of us who believe in something called political democracy. If the court really does that, then it really the game is really over. Yeah, I mean, essentially, presidential elections will be you know will be uh, decided by the state legislators, which are controlled in the, you know in the great majority by the Republican Party. The the the, the the people will be irrelevant when it comes to presidential elections, and the U.S. will return to some kind of early 19th century structure where essentially the, that the federal government is an outgrowth, an arm of the state governments. I mean, it's, it's, it's the complete undoing of anything resembling modern democracy. Democracy. So, that, so the Supreme Court will really be finishing the job that, that Trump began on January 6th. And, uh, and it's just, it augurs really poorly. And the January 6th commission, I think, is just sort of like, you know, fading out. It's, you know, it's fading into irrelevance. It's not coming up with any blockbusters. And... The Democrats, once again, are showing themselves to be really a limp dishrag yeah. in yeah. this whole thing. Yeah, there's a there's a leadership crisis inside the Democratic Party. Hey, let's go uh, quickly to the, the G20. You know, we, we all followed the, the G7 um, closely, right? What was going to come out of it? Who said what about whom? What the positions were on Russia and Ukraine and aid, et cetera, et cetera. The G20 was held over the weekend, and it seems like nobody paid any attention at all. Uh, why, why is that? And was there anything of import that came out of that uh, summit? Oh, I think there was a great deal of import. The, uh, the, the big story was America's loss of influence. Yeah, that, you're G20, right. That's the story. The, uh, the G20 didn't, didn't even issue a, a final statement. Which is very unusual because essentially there was so much, there was so much dissent, uh, and 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 the, the many of the countries refused to line up behind the uh, behind the U.S. So the U.S. essentially decided that the best way, the best recourse was to essentially, you know, give up on even making a final statement. So the U.S. is facing a, a rebellion. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, uh, uh, Anthony Blinken's, you know talk with the, the Chinese foreign minister yeah. uh, was a disaster. It was. I mean, on one, on one hand, they're threatening China. On the other hand, they're trying to cajole China into backing NATO against Russia. It's just not working. It just doesn't make any sense. And then the, and the more Blinken tries to do this, the more the angrier the Chinese get and the warier countries like like India and Indonesia mm -hmm. get. Mm -hmm. Uh, because they're they, because they sort of realize the U.S. is asking them to do the impossible, and the U.S. is behaving in an ever more self-serving manner. So it's just not going anywhere. Yeah. And and U.S. diplomacy, to me, seems to be really failing, failing badly. And the war in the Ukraine, by the way, is going very poorly. Yes. Russia, Russia is making steady, unstoppable progress. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the uh, 
Zelensky is, you know, he's he's pleading for ever more weapons. He's never getting enough. The Russians clearly have him outclassed. Um, and there's nothing the, uh, the Ukrainians can do. And then finally, there was this disaster with the uh, with the Ukrainian ambassador Melnik, and Andrei Melnik, in in uh, in Germany, right. who gave a radio radio interview last month in which he in which he engaged in outright Holocaust denial. Yes, and the the situation was so outrageous that even the New York Times was forced to publish an article about it. You know, and so and so the uh, you know and, and Israel and Poland reacted very angrily so it was a it was a real setback for the u.s war in the ukraine and 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 these failures are really were really evident at the g20 conference um and and the u.s just it's just it's retreating mm-hmm. it's it's floundering uh joe biden is in really serious trouble and his weakness is quite clear and apparent to the American people. So it just really bodes poorly for November. Dan, last year, the Biden administration put an Israeli tech company called NSO on the blacklist, saying that it had acted, quote, contrary to the national security interests of the United States. A major article in the New York Times today says NSO created this notorious software known as Pegasus, which can remotely suck literally all of the data out of your cell phone and then turn it against you and use your phone as a microphone and a tracking device. The Times said that an American defense contractor named L3, which is a pretty major company here in, in the Washington area, has been trying to quietly, secretly buy NSO and its Pegasus software. When their executives were caught making secret trips to Israel, presumably to negotiate the deal to buy the company, they said that they had been urged to buy the company by senior CIA and FBI officials. So I can't decide if this is typical military-industrial complex subterfuge or if this is a major scandal, what are your thoughts? Well, it's a scandal in the sense that you know that, that you know this this Pegasus software was is terrible, immoral, unfair, outrageous. Except ex, unless it winds up in America America's hands, in which case it's like you know it's a it's a, a tool for all that's good you know and, and positive in the world. So you know so 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 yeah, the U.S. engages in these high flown moral denunciations while quietly engaging in this completely self-serving behavior. Um, and, and the thing is that the Pegasus software seems to be a really powerful tool. And, and it's one that every intelligence agency around the world, you know, hungers for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, so I presume the, 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 the CIA is hungry for it as well. So therefore, you know, it's it's doing its best to sort of somehow quietly gain control of this technology, so it can uh, it can make use of it. Um, but you know, it's just it just shows how the how the the U.S. loves to engage in this kind of mm-hmm. moral rhetoric, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and I don't think America really quite understands what a profound turnoff it is <laughs> for the rest of the world because they don't seem to understand like you know, how how grotesque this rhetoric is when, when U.S. behavior is so obviously self-serving, short-sighted, uh, and unhinged, mm-hmm. increasingly unhinged as the 
as the war in Ukraine shows, as the, the collapse in JCPOA negotiations in the Persian Gulf show, uh, et cetera. Uh, last question for you. British uh, conservative political figures are lining up to declare their interest in being considered to head the Tory party, which would make them prime minister now that uh, Boris Johnson is resigning. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss joined the race over the weekend. Others already in it are the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nadim Zahawi, uh, Transportation Secretary Grant Shapps, former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, and six other current or former cabinet ministers. Many British media outlets are saying that the time has come for a Britain of South Asian descent to become prime minister. That would be the first. Others say that the Conservative Party is still too white to make such a choice. What do you think? Is the UK headed for a prime minister of Pakistani origin or just another white guy? I don't know. I mean, it's, all I know is the whole world is sick and tired of this kind of tokenism, uh, which the Americans have also pushed to absurd lengths. Oh, yes. I mean, Rishi Sunak got in trouble because it turned out his wife, who's the uh, daughter of a very wealthy South Asian businessman, uh, had engaged in a $25 million <laughs> pound tax dodge. <sighs> that was interestingly enough in itself. Even more interesting is it appears, it looks like, possibly was, that uh, that uh, Boris Johnson had leaked the news in an attempt to zap a possible rival, oh. um, number one. And number two, I mean, Liz Truss, I, mean, I don't know the other ones, but I do I do know a bit about, about Sunak and a bit about Liz Truss. And Liz Truss is a, just a piece of work. I mean, she, oh, yeah. gave, a, she gave a speech in April uh, in which she called for the NATOization of the G20. She wants to essentially, you know, insert NATO into the South China Sea. You know, she had a, a global strategy for an ever more aggressive U.S.-U.K., Imperial venture. Now, just but just bear in mind the the UK is doing so poorly. They also are stuck with their own crisis of leadership, yeah. and 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 the Tories are engaging in the most abject maneuvers as they're trying to 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 you know transform themselves into the snarling lapdogs yeah. of the US, and you know and it's it's so transparent. And it's clearly going to go nowhere since the U.S. itself is doing so poorly. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, so the whole thing is just, it's just pathetic. Uh, so, you know, so maybe Rishi Sunak will wind up prime minister, in which all the, you know, the New York Times editorials page will tout as a great victory for for this token group and that token group. Um, But the the overall situation is not going to change. And if Liz Truss gets in there, she is an obvious lightweight who is in over her head. And she will just, you know, make make an ass out of herself uh, by engaging in this completely over-the-top pseudo-imperial rhetoric. We are going to leave it there. That was the voice of Dan Lazar, journalist and author and writer. Mm -hmm. He does all different kinds of things. Uh, and I think we're going to skip another. We have so break. much to get to. Yes, I want to. I want to talk about this. It's been. Uh, it has 
it's it's been a little while coming. I have been wanting to talk about Chile's new proposed constitution. Yes. And so we're just going to go straight into it Excellent. so we don't run out of time. Joining us for this conversation is Dennis Rogatuk. He's a writer, journalist, and political analyst. You can find his work uh, at Telesur, Green Left Weekly, International mm-hmm. Viewpoint, other publications. Dennis, thanks for being here again. It's always a pleasure. So, Chile's uh, the new proposed constitution is getting some attention from the likes of The Economist, which is calling it a woke and fiscally irresponsible mess. The Washington Post also called it woke. Uh, It's a trend, apparently. And it seems like it's getting this tag because it mentions gender and says that animals have the right to live without abuse and envisions new environmental protections. And so critics of some of these provisions say the language is too fuzzy. Right. And perhaps they say this so they don't have to say things like, well, how how do you expect me to make any money if we can't destroy animals or the environment or indigenous peoples and their cultures? Um, And so I I wanted to before we talk about what is in the new document, Dennis, um, to remind us of what Chile is leaving behind. Right. The existing constitution comes from the Pinochet era. And when an overhaul was proposed in 2020, this is according to CNN, there was 78 percent approval for making some changes. And so I wonder if you can remind us of what Chileans were rejecting and the kind of society the old constitution helped create. Well, we have to remember that the United, first of all, the 1980 Constitution was not uh, created, was not implemented in a in a kind of a, in a democratic process of any kind. This was a constitution that was uh, drawn up behind behind closed doors uh, by see, with the with the great influence and uh, effectively with with the guiding hand of the of the Chicago of the Chicago Boys, mm-hmm. this infamous group of uh, of neoliberal economists mm-hmm. basically turned uh, Chile into the laboratory of neo of neoliberalism uh, and, th- and this was effectively a constitution which uh, in- really enshr- enshrined uh, the role of not, not just the, not just the private sector and the uh, and business and corporations in Chile but also it really um, empowered the, multi- the various multinationals mm-hmm. from uh, to, to really ac- to, to really be able to exercise their role, their, their role in the in the country's economy, without any kind of uh, resistance from from either the government or the or, or, the, or the trade unions, or uh, effectively, the 1980 constitution was uh, approved by and was safeguarded by the by the Pinochet uh, dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So, in many ways, this um, uh, the reason the reason why in uh, say we we saw this mass uprising in 2019 uh, against the political and economic order of Chile. And the reason why in, then in 2020, almost 80 percent of the population voted to change the constitution is precisely, it's precisely because uh, the, current, the current political system uh, in Chile, even though it's, uh, it went through a period of, I'd say, liberalization uh, following uh, after Pinochet stepping down mm-hmm. uh, from power, it still bears the same kind of hallmark. The, the foundations of the system of the system are still the same as the, as they were um, under the Pinochet uh, dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So the um, 
so this movement, I say, this movement for the for the new constitution is what would mark a, a definitive break uh, with Chile's neoliberal past. But, mm-hmm. but like like you said, uh, there is quite a bit of a opposition that's been building up uh, against this, uh, sort of both inside Chile and and from com- from the commentators uh, overseas, as you said, as you mentioned, the Economist, mm-hmm. which is which, as we know, is the sort of the global uh, the, the global megaphone for liberal and neoliberal uh, political thought. Right. And which has an interest in Chile as the great experiment in, in neoliberalism, right? The ushering in this era that we are all enjoying so much now. And so when they present themselves, I think, as these sort of neutral observers, they're really obscuring uh, their past. They're sort of obscuring their role as the great um, uh, mouthpiece and promoter of this experiment. They're obscuring the role of the United States in, uh, you know, the orchestrating, helping orchestrate the the overthrow of Allende, right? Either with, with their full knowledge, for sure, and probably quite a bit of uh, support. So, yeah, all this outside interest, it has some. There, there is some, I, I guess, sort of interest behind it, right? Because they are watching basically their creation be destroyed. But let's, um, I, I don't want to run out of time here. So I do want to get into what is in this new proposal. What What is in this new constitution? What is so significant about it? What do you think perhaps needs some work? Well, I think what really spooked away the economists in this case has actually been, is actually written in the very first article of the constitution. Uh, so the very, so the very first article of the, of the Chilean, of the new Chilean constitution uh, reads, Chile is a social, as a social democratic state, uh, uh, which is plurinational, intercultural, regional, and 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 ecological. This sort of language is what re- is what has really scared off not just not just you know people who run the economies, but also many of the of the countries or political elites and 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 economic elites, because this because effectively what would the word plurinational uh, would imply would would mean the recognition of the uh, of the indig- of the indigenous uh, rights of the of the of the of the First Nations people of their sovereignty, uh, not just over the territories and uh, resources, but also I'll say. But also, it would effectively uh, destroy the uh, the old social fabric of uh, of Chile, which was which is really which is really based upon um, uh, this. Uh, which was which was I say wasn't just it wasn't doesn't just have you know its its roots in the in the in the Pinochet dictatorship, but also like this this long standing. Um, uh, Say, uh, ideology or, mind, or mindset of being uh, sort of uh, sort of exceptional mm-hmm. in uh, in South America, sort of sort of being more uh, more European or being more uh, or, be, or having a strong connection to the United States, mm-hmm. uh, that that, uh, that sort of thing. So it really flips the entire concept of the, of the Chilean state uh, on its head, and with that uh, comes a whole uh, sort of range of other major changes which will be which will be implemented. Uh, this this includes you know establishing gender parity as a constitution. Uh, right. It includes, uh, you know, the recognition of um, Chile's natural resources as being, as being, uh, you know, for the benefit of uh, of all uh, Chileans. Mm-hmm. It recognizes, as I said, yeah, the ecological nature of the state and the need and the importance of the state in combating uh, cl- uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, uh, recogni- the recognition of sexual di- of sexual diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, the recognition of. Um, 
of la of labor rights and uh, and, of, and of social rights, uh, the recognition of the rights of uh, the environment. So a whole sort of myriad of of these uh, radical reforms and changes, in a, in a way very similar to what was implemented in the in the Bolivian Constitution in 2009 and 2010, which which uh, which also uh, say. Um, uh, transformed uh, Bolivia from being a uh, from from, bas from basically being on almost almost like a like a semi-apartheid society mm -hmm. into being a plurinational state, mm -hmm. and that is precisely uh, what what I'm seeing, what many others are seeing in this new uh, Chilean Chilean constitution, and that is certainly the reason why uh, the campaign against uh, its implementation ha has been so strong. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what I would think exactly. If if you uh, you know. There are quite a lot of people who would not like to see Chile uh, go the way of uh, Bolivia. What do you think has happened in the process of drafting this document? Because it does seem a little bit like the bloom is off the rose. Uh, one public opinion poll last week found that 51 percent of Chileans plans to reject the document, 34 uh, percent plan to approve it. This is only one poll. And, you know, there, as you have been saying, there, there are a there's a lot riding on this new document and not just within Chile. So I wonder, um, first of all, if you can tell us really what you think uh, opinion on this document is within Chile, whether this is an accurate representation of it. And uh, and if it is, you know, what's happened? Why why are people not necessarily comfortable with it? I think in the same poll, the same poll also states that only 55% of those who were asked mm -hmm. had actually read uh, the draft of the, the draft of the constitution. Uh, but overall, uh, yes, there has been there has been a sort of a tendency in the last uh, couple couple of months uh, to reject uh, the, the new constitution. But once again, this was uh, this was based on a very strong uh, media campaign, both social media and private media campaign, as well as the uh, uh, as well as well as the initiatives of, of various right wing. Uh, politicians against um, against the, against the new constitution. Mm -hmm. This is because um, we, we have to, of course, we, we have to remember the kind of uh, you know economic forces uh, which have uh, which have aligned themselves uh, against this against this entire process. Mm -hmm. Now, the I would say that the, I would say another reason for why uh, the I say the reject option has uh, has had the upper hand up until now is because uh, the approval the, the, say the campaign to, for the approval uh, uh, to approve the constitution hasn't even really started yet. Mm -hmm. As we have to remember that the constituent assembly um, itself uh, was you know once it, once uh, upon the completion of the final version of the constitution was dissolved. On, on July 5th, and uh, say by the uh, by the rules established, they will they were not able to actually do any campaigning while they while they were drafting the constitution. Mm -hmm. So now that now that it has now the constitution assembly has uh, has effectively been been dissolved, what. I believe what we are going to start seeing now is this is, is the building of this new uh, mass mass campaign all across Chile, which includes a very very wide array of uh, actors. I say both those who are leading in the constitution in the constitution assembly, those who are in parliament, those who are in the senate, mm -hmm. in the trade unions and social organizations, in the indigenous organizations, the feminist collectives, the student collectives. Um, I say all of these uh, uh, groups, uh, and also just ordinary Chileans who were part of the 2019 uprising, mm -hmm. uh, beginning to I say beginning to uh, uh, organize this mass this mass campaign to once again uh, to, to once again uh, um, 
uh, you know, approve and uh, to implement uh, this radical change uh, that is needed in Chile. So I believe that I believe we got, we're going to see a significant uh, turnaround in the opinion polls in the next uh, couple of in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. uh, def definitely, I would say I would say definitely in the in the month before um, uh, the implementation of the new constitution. That's going to be in September, right? The September uh, is the, the final vote. Sorry, sorry, uh, the month before the referendum mm -hmm. on uh, September fourth. Yeah, I would not put it past the economist to uh, you know use some of this polling to attempt to convince Chileans ahead of the referendum that it's already a dud. You know the way they sort of mm -hmm. do in in politics try to convince people that the thing that you feel really passionately about just isn't viable, so find some other way. Uh, Dennis Rogatuk, we will definitely be in touch with you as this sort of process of uh, approving and perhaps finalizing this new constitution plays out. That was writer, journalist, and political analyst Dennis Rogatuk. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. We've got just a couple minutes left here, John, but I did have two things I wanted to mention. One, did you know that um, AMLO is coming to the White House tomorrow? I only learned that this morning. Yeah. Which is a last-minute visit, and right before Joe Biden leaves for the Middle East. Yes, and also— So this is important. Yeah, pretty important. Our relationship with Mexico is very important. It and, is. And uh, uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador, the president of Mexico, uh, has been a pretty powerful voice mm -hmm. uh, against— the Biden administration's efforts to divide the region, you know, being deciding not to yes. go to the summit of the Americas uh, last month, I believe that was in L.A. Yes. or maybe in mm -hmm. May, uh, and also really pushing for some energy independence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that this could actually be a really consequential meeting that they have uh, sort of slipped in mm -hmm. right before Joe Biden goes uh, gallivanting off to uh, Saudi Arabia. So, yeah. We will not be here tomorrow to talk about it in no. real time, but I think uh, it might be worth discussing on Wednesday. Uh, we'll I see agree. what comes out of that. I agree. Mm -hmm. Also, I just wanted you to know that there have been multiple sightings of an alligator. Wh what state would you guess, John? Well, guess a state where there's going to be an alligator. I, I, I read about this. Ah, okay. yeah. yeah. Well, if you out there are guessing <laughs> Michigan, you're crazy. <laughs> But you're right. I don't get this. Multiple sightings of an alligator in the Kalamazoo River have prompted the closing of a popular nature center in Michigan. Uh, this is a four to five foot alligator. And I guess nowhere in this article, uh, this click on Detroit article, does it say the alligator has escaped from the nature center, but that has to be what has happened, right? This alligator has not made its way to Michigan on its own. That's right. So I wanted to highlight this just because I thought it was very funny, but also, hey guys, you gotta, you can't leave us to draw our own conclusions. You have to, you have to say it seems the alligator escaped from this nature center. It Don't sure make does. people think alligators are swimming their way up from from the Everglades. No, cracked me up. No. I could see somebody making making uh, an uh, or or taking an assumption that it was a pet that escaped or that the that the owner let go. But this nature center's right there. Yes. And yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's where it that's came where from. The nature center. Yeah. Yeah. I hope he gets out of that river. Okay. Michigan's cold. Michigan's cold. But have you ever seen what they do when when uh, when their ponds freeze in the south? No. Uh, they stick their their noses what? up out of the ice. And so their bodies are in the water, but the noses are up above the uh, the ice, mm -hmm. and and they sleep that way, like yeah. standing on their tails. Huh. 
All right, cool. I once saw a live frog under the ice in a pond. That was very cool. Wow. I guess that's what frogs do. They just hang out down there in the mud, yeah. swim around there in the cold, yes. somehow survive. Let that I like be, that. Let that be a lesson to us. I like it too. <laughs> I like live frogs more than I like dead frogs. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I'm actually, I'm very interested in what comes out of this meeting with the Mexican president uh, yeah. tomorrow. And so I'm hoping we get to talk about that in a little bit more detail on Monday. We're going to have to leave it there. That was, I think, the busiest second hour of this show we've ever done, but we got through it all and we didn't have to uh, shortchange anybody too much. I want to say thanks to all of our guests who were here for the first hour and that jam-packed second one. Thanks to the engineers and producers here who make the show possible. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We will see you on Wednesday. 